Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I am talking with Dr. Letitia Brown about her research and scholarship on black athletes and plantation politics. This is episode 61 of Untenured Tracks. calling it um, Pariah Today, Hero Tomorrow, and it's kind of focusing on the changing faces of Black athletic activism, Mm -hmm. and so thinking about how we remember, you know, now, Tommy Smith and John Carlos as these, like, magnificent heroes, Mm -hmm. but when they did what they did in 1968, they were pariahs to the mainstream. And um, just kind of thinking about how mainstream America valorizes in death, not only just like black athletes, but black activists. And so putting that together and thinking about black athlete activism today. And so in the paper, we talk a lot about, you know, the WNBA and Maya Moore and the ways that... um, especially the voices of women in movements tend to get foreshadowed or overlooked because like you know last week or a couple of weeks ago everyone was really excited about the nba and like what they wanted to do in terms of a strike and it's like okay but let's not forget that maya moore has been talking about you know like social justice reform since 2016 she's Mm -hmm. been working to get um an incarcerated man out of prison she set out two seasons to do so the wnba as a collective decided to stand up and do the say your say her name campaign and so just kind of like weaving together these threads of history and contemporary activism and thinking about Mm. of course the intersections of race gender and class so one question, the first question that comes to mind then, um, thinking about the, uh, the, the civil rights era generation, um, and, uh, uh, Tommy Smith and Juan Carlos and, and, um, were there, were there women athletes back then who were, um, involved in like activism? There were. And so like, even before the Olympic games happened, mm-hmm. there was a conversation about whether or not black athletes in the U.S., both women and men, were going to boycott. Like, that was a question. And you had scholar activists like um, Dr. Harry Edwards working with these athletes to kind of, like, think about what the best platform would be and whether or not to participate would be a platform or to not participate. Mm -hmm. And so there were women that were there. They're just not as readily known as, you know... Carlos and Smith, like, they're just Mm -hmm. not as readily known, like, when people talk about, you know, Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, but in the same breath, they can't think of, like, Ida B. Wells or Fannie Lou Hamer or Asana Shakur, and so it's just, like, these narratives that movements are run and led by men, it's, like, it's mythical. Women have always been there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, that's something that's come up in, in like my work too. So I teach a revolutions class, and oh, nice. and um, like I'm not concerned about the military part of it because I think that American history courses are way too mati- like militaristic, <laughs> and and students just learn like there was this battle in this year and this battle in this year. Um, so the revolution stuff just focuses on like the sociology of it up until whatever like a conflict officially broke out. And there's all kinds of stories about women um, that are, I guess you would say, like, against type, that are really 
kind of gory <laughs> and and uh like crazy and so i like i like telling the students about this as we go through it because i want them to feel empowered right and here are here are stories of like everyday people just right. who've had enough and don't really care about stuff politically as much as they care about like we don't have any bread <laughs> and right. you know stuff like that and uh just lash out um and so yeah like it's i wish that sociology did a better job with like historical stuff i think For that sure. i think we need to have like more historical sociology just because like the erasure right right and i i think of it in terms of like from like an entertainment perspective like we know that representation matters and so if students can see themselves represented in people in the past who are who are trying to take charge of stuff um or standing up for what they believed in then they might feel more empowered to you as well because representation is so important like and even just in the classroom i think it's really important and so like that's one of the things that i guess drew me into the idea of becoming a faculty member was i know how important it was for me to like see people who resembled me in the classroom Mm -hmm. And because those were the people that encouraged me. Mm-hmm. Those were the people that saw something in me that I didn't see. Mm-hmm. And they became my mentors. Like, I didn't know. Like, I knew that you needed a PhD to become a professor. But I didn't see that as a path for myself until, like, my junior year of undergrad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, too, thinking about representation in academia and how... Mm-hmm how much we understand now, like how, how whatever the message is that we're trying to teach varies in its success by the demographics of the person teaching it and like how that matches with the audience, I guess. I'm not sure if I'm saying this that well, but it kind of goes against like the idea that everything we do is completely objective and that science is just this value neutral thing. I mean, like, so long as people in, are involved, nothing can be value neutral, right? Because we all have values. Yeah. None of us are neutral human beings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's that generation right. before me, at least, who was like, everything is everything is objective, and the numbers say what they are, and it doesn't, it shouldn't matter who's in front of the classroom. Well, like, it obviously does. The students are going yeah. to be biased. Uh, faculty are going to be biased in terms of like how do we what readings do we pick who do we how intentional are we in designing our class versus just picking out a textbook and like running with it and stuff right. like that so yeah like it it totally matters to think about uh, past athlete activists um, in general but especially those from maybe even like thinking about it intersectionally, right? Like from yeah. even more marginalization, like even more marginalized groups. Oh, for um, sure. And this semester I'm teaching a course that I am calling Plantation Politics, the Black Sport Experience. Mm-hmm. And so this is like me really connecting my research to my teaching. Yeah. And it's the first time I'm teaching it. So it's my like pilot class and I have 22 students and they're great. Many of them have taken classes with me before, and so they wanted to, you know, take this class because they, I guess, enjoyed my teaching style. Mm-hmm. Others are student athletes who saw this title and were like, oh, yeah, I want to take that class. Others are just like sport enthusiasts mm-hmm. who were curious about what a sociology of sport class would look like yeah. under the umbrella of Africana studies, which is kind of how it's situated here at Tech. Yeah. And so, you know, we were talking about black athletes and we're doing so from like a primarily U.S. based perspective, but also kind of globally, because the initial research that I've done on sports had to do with representation and specifically representation of black athletes like Castor Semenya. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about like the ways in which the media framed Semenya throughout, like after she won the world championships in Berlin and then moving on and kind of focusing on 
how people would position her as not woman enough and how that relates to these ideas of black women in general being hyper-masculine. And so we're going to talk about race and representation, sexuality, gender, class. I have a couple of really great guest speakers coming to speak. Um, We just had Reggie Walker, who was a former NFL player, come and talk about his experiences in the league and also just like his personal experiences of mm-hmm. dealing with issues of mental health and sexual assault. And he was very open and very willing to share with the students and adamant that he would have a platform to do so in more spaces. So mm-hmm. I'm amplifying his name because <laughs> I said I would. And so <laughs> Reggie Walker, great, great guy. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious like so teaching in Virginia and the yeah. title of the class being plantation politics i I'm curious about and we're only i mean we're recording this in early September um so just a few weeks into the year. Have your students asked you like how did you how did you broach i guess the title of the course with them because i I'm wondering if there was like confusion on their part or uh, like <laughs> did they did they i don't want to feel like misled isn't the right word. I'm just, I'm just, I guess I'm just curious, like, how the first couple of weeks have gone and, yeah. and what, how the students reacted to this, this type of sociology of sports, So, I guess. the name, so I have students kind of do, like, an introductory form so I can gauge, like, why they're in the class, kind mm-hmm. of what they're doing in their lives so I can have an idea of how much is too much and, like, kind of help and assist in that way. And a lot of students said that the title drew them into the course. Yeah. And I think that we're still in the early stages, right, of making the connections between, you know, plantation politics and sport and thinking about how sports are reflective of plantations. Mm-hmm. But I do think that when Reggie Walker was here, he talked about it. And he was like, I saw the syllabus. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. It makes these parallels between, like, my experiences in the NFL and in college football. So that was really helpful, having him come and talk so early in the semester. Like, mm-hmm. it was perfect. So for people who are listening who may not who may not um, mm-hmm. grasp what the connection is that you're trying to make, could you expand on the idea of the connection between sports and, and plantation politics? Yeah, so it's not it's not new. It's a common theme that comes up in people who study sports and thinking about how the industries are kind of run like plantations. You have um, the book, for instance, $40 million slaves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as athletes might be making a lot of money, but at the same time, they're being managed and run kind of the same way as like slave labor and so it's kind of like positioning how athletes continue to be like manipulated and at times like emasculated or like kept from being vocal for instance in terms of being political because sports is supposed to be this like apolitical space but I don't know any apolitical spaces, but sure, maybe they exist. I don't know. But thinking about just, like, the relationships and how kind of, like, um, NFL drafts and picks like that are kind of like auction blocks. And so it's like, you know, plantation politics makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, the draft is <laughs> bizarre. Um, yeah. And it just... just like, even sports in general, like when women first started participating, how they had to do these, like, naked parades in front of, you know, a slew of judges to judge whether or not they were actually women. And Mm -hmm. what even does that mean? And so it's just, there are so many overlaps and similarities between the ways in which plantations were run and the ways in which sports exist today. Not even just, like, at the professional level, but at the collegiate level, and even now starting maybe at, like, the peewee level. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have very little experience with with youth sports with my children, um, mm-hmm. but I hate it. <laughs> I I deeply dislike it. Um, so you had said that, um, or I I think I heard um, that you've done other work in this area. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Like like what was your dissertation on? Well, so my dissertation was actually about um, food and social relationships, and so it was kind of like 
a departure from my earlier work, but mm-hmm. more closely rooted to why I went to grad school. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was originally an aerospace engineering major. <laughs> I thought I was going to go to Emory Riddle, got in, went to visit. It was great, but I knew that I wanted a more interdisciplinary type of education than just like straight technical. Mm-hmm. So I started at the University of Pittsburgh because they had a great engineering program, but also like English and French and all mm-hmm. types of things that I was curious about. But my first two years were just kind of like sad. I had no idea what I was doing. I moved there from Pullman, Washington, where my graduating class was like 90 to Pittsburgh, where there are, like, so many people, and I had no idea what to do with myself. And I was, like, this small fish in this big pond. And for the first time in my life, I didn't know how to, like, ask for help because I had never needed help before academically. It just kind of, like, flowed. Yeah. But after my sophomore year, I transferred to the University of Northern Colorado, smaller school, great school, closer to home, closer to my family, you know, my dad and my sisters all live in Colorado and Denver, and at the time, my dad was having a kidney pancreas transplant, and so going home made sense. Mm -hmm. And I went there also because they had this program called the McNair Scholars Program. Mm -hmm. And for me, that seemed like a path to redemption, because I had always been, you know, like the smart one. And then suddenly I wasn't. And I was like, I don't know what to do without this identity. It's the only identity that I have. Because when you're 19 and 20, maybe that is the only identity that you have. So I got into McNair. I decided to major in Africana studies. And one of my mentors, you know, talked about going to grad school. And that's what McNair sets you up for is to go to grad school but I didn't know what I was going to study. I knew that I loved Africana studies, but I kind of wanted something different. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at, like, the people who I was citing in my McNair thesis, Mm -hmm. the women like Patricia Hill Collins and Margaret L. Hunter, and I was like, oh, they're sociologists. Maybe I'm a sociologist, cool so i'm gonna go to grad school in sociology and i'm gonna study eating disorders and women of color and that's what i'm gonna do because i know everything (laughs) 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 so i got into grad school at the university of texas in austin decided to go there i also got into vanderbilt but ut felt more like a place where i would thrive And I ended up doing work with um, Dr. Ben Carrington, who is a genius on a multitude of issues around culture and race. And I took his critical race theory class. And in that class, we had a final paper. And he kind of, like, helped me narrow a topic. And I ended up doing um, representations of black women athletes Mm -hmm. through the lens of controlling images like by Patricia Hill Collins. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote that paper, submitted it to the North American Society for the Sociology of Sports so I could go to like my first academic conference as a grad student because Mm -hmm. I did one as an undergrad, but this was different. Uh, um, Submitted the paper, uh, got accepted, and it ended up winning their... Barbara Brown Student Paper Award for the oh, master's wow. category. And so Ben was like, so now this has to be your master's thesis. And I was like, oh. Okay, sure, why not? <laughs> and so my master's, sex, drugs, and Barbie, gender verification, drug testing, and the commodification of the black female athlete looked at, you know, Castor Semenya, Marion Jones, and Florence Griffith Joyner. And I fell in love with the sociology of sport after that. But for my dissertation, what kind of made me switch to food was I took an elective in American studies called American Food, mm-hmm. where we did these oral histories of iconic Texas restaurants. Mm-hmm. And it was fabulous. And I remembered 
earlier young dreamy Letitia's idea of studying eating disorders and I was like food is a way to kind of get back to that and so I decided to look at um, different types of relationships and contexts and how it shaped the social experience of eating among college educated black and white adults for my dissertation so what did you find oh wow so that was <laughs> there was a lot <laughs> um, but my three main chapters focused on romantic relationships, workplace relationships, and religion. Mm-hmm. And I just recently had my first article based on my dissertation data published in June <laughs> in like um, the most unexpected place. It's um, in the <laughs> International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health. <laughs> You're like, because they had this like <laughs> special call for papers that was looking at um, black men, masculinity, and health and mm-hmm. stress. And I had data because the black men in my sample talked about like masculinity through the lens of religion and how mm-hmm. it influenced what they ate, which in turn shapes health. So <laughs> I um, kind of carved out that piece from one of my chapters and submitted it and was pleasantly surprised when I got my first R&R as a nice. faculty member. And Good for you. That R&R led to a publication and it's called um, Eat to Live, Don't Live to Eat. <laughs> Black Men, Masculinity, Food and Faith. If you can't tell, I'm a big fan of titles. Yeah, I was going to say, your titles are on point. <laughs> your titles are super good. Um, titles are my favorite part of writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an attention getter. Um, so, I just I just want to ask like a follow up question. So sure. I can I'm totally out of my element, but I I can make connections between like masculinity and and what men would eat, mm-hmm. and I can make a connection between religion and masculinity, mm-hmm. but. There's a connection between religion and what what you eat? So for the men in my sample, many of them talked about fasting. Mm-hmm. But not fasting because, for, for instance, because they were, like, observing a religious, you know, kind of endeavor. But right. more of this, like, personal tool of engaging in a form of masculinity that kind of pushes back against the idea that black men are out of control. Okay. Because to fast is to be in control. Yeah. And so it kind of pushes back against these, like, narratives of who and what black men are Mm -hmm. through the lens of, like, Hammond and Mathis and their work on black men and masculinity and spiritual religiosity is one of the main, like, components of how black men talk about their masculinity. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of like drew on those ideas to craft this paper with the data that I had, which was interview data, because mm-hmm. I love interviews. And it turned out to be, I mean, I think it's a great paper. It's the first one. So I'm hoping that every paper from here on <laughs> out gets better. Like, that's the goal, right? Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> sure it's a great paper. And then you like build on it to make more nuances as you grow. Yeah. So did they say how often they would fast? Was it like a monthly thing or? No. So one of the main fasts that they did was the Daniels fast, which is like once a year at the beginning of the year. And it's a 21 day period. Okay. And then others were involved in like this community fasting through like um, this black, black people health initiative that they had created. And so their fasting was more often than just Mm -hmm. once a year, but also talking about like the nature of community building as a way of engaging in positive aspects of masculinity. Mm -hmm. It was really just fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that sounds really interesting. And like to bring up, I mean, I asked about the frequency because I mean, I imagine it's a a very fine line, right. Between, like intentionality and then sort of out of control anorexia right which again like brought me back full circle yeah this idea of like food and eating and eating disorders and so it was just like kind of this circular moment for me Mm -hmm. in grad school and it was 
really wonderful to see. Like it was a stressful process. Like not gonna not gonna sugarcoat that. Like <laughs> from undergrad to the PhD because I went right into a PhD program, right? And mm-hmm. I was just like, huh, this is a lot different than undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> and I was an associate major in undergrad, right? So like you know, like I knew Marx and mm-hmm. I knew Du Bois because as an Africana studies major, I kind of understood. Marxism through the lens of the Black Panther Party, right? Yep. But I didn't know, like, sociology Marx and the way that they talk about Marx or <laughs> Hoffman. I was like, who's it? Or who? Yeah. What? Like, so it was like learning all of these new and powerful things, but it was fascinating. Yeah, no, I had a, I had a very similar experience. Uh, <laughs> I started off as a computer science major. Oh, yes. Um, I hated it. It was probably the worst two years of my life <laughs> until mm-hmm. I, until my parents were finally like, you can change majors. Like you don't have to keep doing this. Um, and I bounced around and I, I loved social 101, but I hated social 201 at my university. Yeah. And I was like, I'm never taking another sociology class again. Um, and then ended up with a social PhD. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah. I took two sociology classes as an undergrad. I took introduction to sociology and the sociology of emotions, and I just decided that that's what I was going to get my PhD in. <laughs> Made absolutely no sense. Like, looking back on it, I'm like, what? Six does that? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, uh, again, like, I took criminology my senior year because a friend of mine wanted me to take it with her. And I was like, this is a 400 level class. I'm graduating this semester. This is a bad idea. Um, and then I loved it, and I was like, I'm going to grad school for this, <laughs> which is totally on a whim. So I really like hearing stories, and I think it's important, too, for for other people uh, to hear that, like, not every academic was like, I knew since I was six years old I was going to be a professor. And oh, so, like, when I was six years old, I wanted to be a rocket scientist, <laughs> yeah. because I wanted to go to space. Yep. Right? And I wanted to build something that only I would know how to operate so that I would have to go to space. Because I knew that, like, you had to be an astronaut and that that would, like, be the Army or something. And I was like, well, I can't be in the Army because I know myself. But if I invent something that only I can operate, they'll have to take me. <laughs> they'll have to take me. I'm the only one with the keys. <laughs> That's clearly not a good enough reason to get a degree in aerospace engineering. <laughs> physics and astronomy i took a combined um physics chem class my senior year just for kicks and giggles and it was fabulous but i just knew that like that wasn't the path for me (laughs) i still want to go to space and i'm hoping that if we do colonize people they'll need a sociologist like if we colonize other planets and i'll be like i can help create a better society yep oh yeah hypothetically (laughs) (laughs) you certainly couldn't do worse (laughs) (laughs) no that was gonna be my next question like do you still want to go to space because hopefully the answer and the answer is obviously absolutely yes oh yes like and i just think about it like differently now so i get to teach books like you know octavia butler's parable of the sower Mm -hmm. where there's this like idea that (laughs) the future of earth is to take root amongst the stars and so Mm -hmm. it's like i'm still kind of you know living my six-year-old fantasy but just in a very different way than i thought i would oh yeah yeah i would love to teach a science fiction course oh my god a science fiction and sociology class would be would be so like unbelievable it would be amazing there are so many good texts yeah i try to teach a novel in each of my courses Mm -hmm. because i teach things like social inequality race and ethnicity race and racism Mm -hmm. And so the book that I've been using, like, since I've been here at Tech is um, Nick Stone's Dear Martin, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful, painful, but beautiful story of, you know, a young black man who's attending an all-white, um, a mostly white <laughs> prep school for, you know, college prep and his interactions with the police and how he comes to understand his position living in these two different worlds and other characters develop Mm -hmm. and they grow and it's just it's really interesting and there's a lot of like discussions of media Mm -hmm. and race and violence and so 
but also like growth because he writes these letters to Martin Luther King Jr. to kind of like suss out how he can understand his own existence through that lens. And mm-hmm. It's just it's a great book. I'm gonna keep using it. So. I'm gonna I'm gonna order it today. You should. It's wonderful. <laughs> Nick Stone is like a fabulous fabulous writer. Yeah. I wanted to do a novel in this class, Plantation Politics, but I just didn't find one that I was really gung-ho about. Yeah. Because there aren't very many that relate to, like, activism and sports and the black experience. And Mm -hmm. I'm waiting for that novel. Maybe I'll have to write it one day. I was just going to say, (laughs) I just, you just took the words right out of my mouth that, (laughs) I mean, in in the writing programs that that I'm in... They will tell you that uh, the the book that you're writing or the movie you're writing is the one that you want to see that <laughs> hasn't right. been made yet. And right. so I think this is, I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> and then you could like flex in front of your students too. Like, I wrote this book. It's a novel. Yeah. I wrote a novel yeah. too, by the way. Too. So I, just, I do everything. Yeah, no big deal. Um, I, I'll autograph it for you if you want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, sorry. Like I, I started thinking about like the science fiction and sociology classes, and like oh, my yeah. brain starts racing because I wrote a I wrote a book chapter. It's coming out in December, I think, okay. on uh, Star Wars and criminology. Oh, um, really. Specifically, Marxism and Star Wars and criminology, Whoa, which was so I much, which is so much fun because, I mean, the whole that whole franchise is like rife with problems, right? Oh yeah. Um, behind the scenes, but so like taking that part out of it and just thinking about the story, it's so it's such a great like template of of the rise and fall of empires and revolutions, mm-hmm. um, and just like the kind of the randomness of it all and like people don't realize that like there are multiple genocides depicted in the star wars movies and yeah for sure and 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 like you know we're gonna see it happening more and more um with us as far as like the advancement of ai right but the whole way that they treat droids in those movies oh my god um as really like like a stand-in for enslaved people for sure um and just how verbally abusive a lot of characters are to the yeah. droids. But then it's like, like Luke Skywalker's nice to his droids. Right. <laughs> and so, and it's just so good. Like it's so for a Disney, for now a Disney property right. and, and just like a, what's been pop science fiction. It's just rich with I stuff like that. I would love to read that chapter. I mean, in my, um, inequality class in my race, this class, gender sexualities class, I often show an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation mm-hmm. called The Outcasts, mm-hmm. which is when, like, you know, the Enterprise encounters these people from a planet of an androgynous race. That, and that, so there are, like, so many levels and layers, and it's not perfect by any means because of, like, you know, you have, you have to think about the era in which it came out, but <laughs> it raises so many interesting questions when one of the people decides that they feel more like a woman mm-hmm. and they fall in love with like will Riker, yep. and then they have to like go and be like reprogrammed and i'm just like there are so many things happening here i just like love watching my students faces while they watch it uh-huh they're always like what's happening and i'm like yeah what is happening what <laughs> yeah what's going on rikers has Riker has feelings he didn't know he could feel Right. Yeah, and against a, a very like hyper militarized backdrop. Right. Like it's <laughs> insane, but it's just like such a cool experience, and I'm always just like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I made that face the first time I saw it too. <laughs> I still make that face now, thinking about like right. because it's so ham fisted. <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> like so many things. <laughs> But that's why I think that sci-fi and sociology are such a good combination, they right? Really because we could take all the all the issues that we we want to focus on, right. and like for whatever reason, setting it against this like fantastical futuristic backdrop, it doesn't right. matter. Like even like how uh, like how happy the future is, 
Like somehow it's just easier for students to take instead of being like, and to bring it all the way back to half an hour ago, instead of being like, hey, like uh, the NBA strike kind of fizzled out quick, huh? <laughs> what's, right, right. what's up with that? And then big, like, but going to talk about that in my class. Yeah, week. in the year twenty two thirty, the right. <laughs> yeah, have a, you know, black um, <laughs> captain of like a Deep Space Nine station. You know, like DS Nine is one of my favorite stars. Yes, because, you know, like just like I think that like Captain Cisco and his relationship with his son is such an important portrayal of like beautiful black masculinity mm-hmm. like they hug each other yep he like kisses his head and yep. there's like nothing like traumatic about mm-hmm. it like i mean of course there's the trauma of like losing his wife like that's totally traumatic mm-hmm. but yeah it's also just like this beautiful story and i think about the times in which he goes back in time mm-hmm. in that series like when he's like dreaming and all these things and mm-hmm. how they're just reshaping these relationships of like race relations and it's just like yeah pretty fascinating isn't it i I just love it i have a deep deep love for deep space nine i love it so much i i think it's by far like the best uh televised american science fiction that's ever been made (laughs) by far i think it blows every other star trek product away i love how how cisco is how they portray him through the majority of the show Mm-hmm. Like balancing, like he's a he's a dad. Mm-hmm. He is obviously a major figure in this in this military. He has this religious identity right. thrust upon him. Right. He, which leads to him kind of developing this deep affection for um, for the Bajorans. Yeah. Um, which are, like challenges lots of like colonial types of narratives, it right? Does. Um. Because you can totally see him retiring and just like moving to Bajor and just being like That's a community. All he to do was, like have a little house there. <laughs> yeah, and and using the Bajorans too as like a stand-in for like Jewish experiences in in Europe, right? Right. Um, like how often do you see do you see that in science fiction? <clears throat> like very it's rare. Done. Yeah. Done. Yeah, it's so it's it's just so good. Um, and like moving too in ways that other types of science fiction don't really don't really get you right because right. and entirely because Avery Avery Brooks is so is so insanely talented. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and even Worf, right? Like Worf was just kind of a two dimensional oh, dude before right. he gets on that before he but joins that he cast. Becomes this complex yeah person that like I always felt Worf was complex but he became super complex on on Deep Space Nine like I knew it was in there I knew it was in there (laughs) yeah yeah Michael Dorn's a great actor too and I I just I think because of of TNG being like we're gonna try to model ourselves after like the adventure of the week kind of structure that that a lot of like good acting gets lost in a serialized thing like that but Deep Space Nine lets you build like bigger, bigger stories and like explore all these themes so much better. I did not expect to be like fully nerding out about Deep Space Nine today, <laughs> and so I, I do not apologize to people listening to this who were hoping to hear lots about sports because we are the furthest cultural thing away from this. Captain Cisco loved baseball. Yes, so that bring us back to sports. He so did. Like, yeah. When they when they have to abandon the station and he leaves the baseball on the desk and ops. Right. That's such a badass right. <laughs> moment. Like, I'm coming back for this. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, um, so let's let's talk about the NBA strike real quick, <laughs> just okay, to yeah. to try to keep it on topic. Um, a little bit. What do you think happened there? So we are again early recording this in early September. Mm-hmm. Any we know from 2020 and well really from 2015 to now that anything could happen day to day. Um but it seemed like like the Braun was le- leading the charge and then uh then yeah, folded. I, I, I have thoughts. <laughs> um, but it's just kind of like hmm I'm not I can't say that I'm terribly surprised. Yeah. One of the things that I kind of like 
thought was important about this moment is that people were using the phrase like boycott and strike interchangeably, and I'm like, but they're not. Yeah. They're not the same thing. Like, yeah. In one case, you're withholding your labor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in another instance, you're just like you know not giving in to like the capital capitalist like profit, and I'm like similar. Like, when, you know, African-Americans boycotted, like, the bus system, like, they weren't withholding their labor from the buses, that would have been a strike. Yeah. You know, so it's like, we have to think about the ways in which words and language matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, like, think, you know, hopefully this will allow us to kind of, like, shine a brighter light on, like, the WNBA and mm-hmm. the women who are doing the work. Yeah. Because they're still doing the work. They're still and doing the work. It's just, it's it's fascinating to me, and I just, that's why I kind of wanted to, you know, create this course. I mean, I've been dreaming about teaching a course on race and sports since I took critical race theory with Dr. Ben Carrington. Like, mm-hmm. I knew Ben, and I got to meet, like, Dr. Harry Edwards, I think it was, like, my third year in grad school, and I was just, like, these titans, and, like, not just because they're, like, super tall and I'm 5'2", but because they're actually, like, you know, (laughs) fantastically minded people, like, in the picture, it's, like, me and Ben and Dr. Edwards and, like, two other students, and... I'm like, I just, every time I look at it, I'm like, wow, I really am that short, huh? (laughs) Who knew? Who knew? But, you know, kind of like, I grew as a scholar through their, you know, their writings and kind of like combining that with, you know, black feminisms is like a dream. And so when I had the opportunity to create this course, I talked about it with the chair of my department and I was like, well, write up a proposal. And I was like, okay. Because there was a, I was like, we need a class that, like, can bring together this this moment. And, like, mm-hmm. of course, I was designing this, like, well before now. Like, last year yeah. this time, I was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't, like, you know, the strikes that are happening right now. But I was thinking about, like, you know, Kaepernick and yeah. other other kind of, like, Mm-hmm. spaces and spaces and thinking like what can I do to like you know first give myself more work because like who doesn't want to create a new class in their first year on the tenure track like that sounds like a good idea <laughs> it just kind of like fell into place yeah. and then having it be approved for this semester every day my class writes itself Oh, yeah. Every day something happens, and I'm just like, hmm, I wonder how we're going to talk about that today. <laughs> like, yeah. It's really just been phenomenal. So, I'm curious. Um, yeah. So, I have, I have two questions. I have, I have an, like, mainstream sports, and I have kind of a fringe question. So, I guess I'll ask the mainstream one first. Um, so, what what's your take on the, on the NBA and, I guess, other leagues? I mean, who knows what the NFL is going to do? Um, but with their sort of, I guess, token gestures of, of justice and solidarity, letting players have slogans on their backs of their jerseys, putting like black lives matter and the, on the, along the baseline. Right. I mean, like it's much easier to do that than to actually fight for, you know, racial equality (laughs) and justice, you know, it's much easier to do that than to think about hiring practices of people in positions of power within the leagues it's easier to do that (laughs) than you know like blackball fantastic players because they want to speak out because if you lose more than one then what are you going to do with the league like it's better to do that so that you can bring back you know people who abandoned the nfl because of people like uh, because of what happened to you know Eric Reed and Colin Kaepernick, like I haven't watched an NFL game since 2016, and I don't see yeah. myself doing so again until there is like significant changes. Yeah, and not just like you know police brutality and anti-blackness, but like when we think about things like domestic violence mm-hmm. and like the reputation of athletes and how they handle issues of sexual assault, and kind of just like depending on who the player is, is it going to be talked about or is it going to be brushed under the rug? And then I think about, like, you know, 
Michael Vick and all of the flack that he got. Yeah. And I'm not going to compare, you know, like mm-hmm. dog fighting to sexual assault, but I'm also not going to say that there aren't threads that you can't see. Like, right. There are definitely threads that you have to put together and think about critically when you are analyzing these things. Yep. And like, I don't know this person. I haven't watched the NFL in, like I said, like four years, and I'm just like kind of over it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting too, like the, the NBA, I think it was a players association move. Um, right. when they, they put pressure on, on the owners to have every, every arena converted into a polling place. Right. It, it really sounds like a certain president had like his finger on the scale with this move <laughs> and, yeah. and is like every solution, every problem can be solved by voting, which is not right. true. <laughs> we know that historically, right, right. Your vote doesn't matter if they're taking your voting, your votes away. And right. <laughs> so, so it's just like I said, it's easier to do certain things and to do others. And to do the hard like, stuff. If you want to be easy. Like mm-hmm. that's fine. I don't have to support you. Yeah. Um, so the fringe question I wanted to ask you yeah. about, um, and if, if this is like completely off the wall, don't sweat it. My producer will just delete this part. <laughs> so, so I don't sound dumb. And so you're not just left kind of dumbstruck. Do you talk about professional wrestling at all in your class? You know, I haven't. <laughs> But I do find wrestling really fascinating and kind of, like, the performance of it all. Yeah. Like, you know, Trinity is my most favorite wrestler. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, when I think about the race, class, gender dynamics that are so apparent in wrestling, it's something that we could talk about. I did talk about um, a high school and I believe Kansas City that's mm-hmm. trying to hold a live wrestling match with like hmm. thousands of people and I'm just kind of like you want people touching people yeah. in COVID like you, this is a good idea for what yeah so if you if you're looking for another rich white billionaire to right. cast as like the modern day plantation owner uh, yeah. let me introduce you to Vincent Kennedy McMahon <laughs> who is oh who what is an incredible uh, well, I guess I don't want to get sued, so I'm just going to say, allegedly, an incredible bastard. <laughs> he, this year alone, um, WWE has... So let's think. It's been a long year. So I believe this year they had a show in Saudi Arabia where what? their planes were grounded because of a, a dispute over money between Vince and... Uh, Muhammad uh, MBS. I'm going to butcher his name, so I'm just going to use his initials. Um, so and so, even, even after right the the murder of um, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post, WWE continued yes. to do business with him. Um, right. Talent grounded in I forget which city, um, Riyadh maybe. Um, oh grounded planes grounded on the orders of, of MBS over this money dispute yeah. with Vince, while Vince was on his private plane taking off. Uh, the pandemic happens, and even though WWE was is a like infinitely profitable business, he right. used that as an excuse to fire people <laughs> because he saw other small businesses who are like, well, we have we have no choice but to like slash our our wages and slash our staff. Um, so Vince, they like people called it like Black Wednesday, oh um, like like cut loose tons of people um, in the name of. Try, like like we've been hit really hard by this um then <laughs> they they basically uh bribe florida <laughs> so linda mcmahon is the chair of the trump 2020 re-election committee yes. um and so they have a lot of um like their training school is in is in florida and so they when the, when the Republican National Convention was going to be in Florida, the Trump campaign sent down like a few million dollars from the re-election fund to Florida. And then like 24 hours later, Governor DeSantis was on TV talking about how uh, sports entertainment, 
professional wrestling is an essential business and they should be allowed to to reopen and keep running um so then <laughs> all these pro wrestlers get covid um yeah. because they they're not taking it seriously their company wasn't taking it seriously the testing was really shoddy um WWPR did not want them to tell people that they were sick uh and then this week, a couple of days ago, they announced that as of October, their talent are not allowed to market themselves on any kind of third-party platforms. So, like, there were... Do you know what Cameo is? Yeah. So there were there were wrestlers making five figures on Cameo uh-huh. um, outside of, like, using their real names and, and outside of WWE, like, Oversight. They have shows on Twitch and YouTube. And right. Vince is like, you're not allowed to do any of this. Which got the attention of people both in SAG-AFTRA, um, so like wrestlers don't have a union, um, right. so now the Screen Actors Guild <laughs> is getting huh. involved, and Andrew Yang, uh, he of yeah. Yang Gang fame, tweeted, I don't know if I'm going to be the next Secretary of Labor, but I'll have their phone number to make a call about, about this independent contractor stuff. So this year alone, and the XFL collapsing, <laughs> this year alone, Vince McMahon has, like, he was already in the Hall of Fame for, like, corrupt and, and cartoonishly evil entertainment and sports promoters, but this year, like, locked it down. The only, like, the only rival would be if, like, if Trump loses and opens another casino, <laughs> or, or whatever, but, like, it's... It's like Mr. Burns level. He's like he's almost like a Monty Python character, That's as like just the the wild stuff that he's that he's done just this year that that family has done this year. So, but the the crux of it is that they and like all professional wrestling organizations like following this template in the U.S. their their employees aren't technically employees. They're all independent contractors. Huh. So they all have to pay for their own health insurance. Uh, at tax time, they have to file separate tax returns for every state that they performed in. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, they, they are responsible for driving themselves from show to show, booking their own hotels and ev- like everything. So they, the company kind of has its cake and eats it too. And so if you're looking for material on yeah, corporations like, yeah, exploiting... I mean, it's not, it's not technically pro sports and they would say they're not pro sports because the right. the the finishes are all uh rigged obviously but obviously. the violence is real <laughs> and the consequences of the violence are very real, very real. like the the number of guys who have developed substance abuse problems who have died in their 40s from from years of drug use and um concussions and the whole you know chris benoit tragedy and oh and there's a documentary that came out this year about the death of owen hart and wwe's role in that they've had a bad year pr wise (laughs) and so if you're looking for material if you want to throw like a i mean it's a bad sports metaphor i didn't or pun i didn't mean to start down this track but if you want to throw a curveball at your students and be like let's talk about Vince McMahon as this (laughs) super villain (laughs) Right. <laughs> well, thank you. Like that's definitely something I did not know. Oh, and their their treatment of black wrestlers historically and the racism that they have used kind of cartoonishly right. is like you could have a month of material oh, yeah. on, on him alone. So, like honestly, any sport could take like an entire course. Like I could do an entire course on like the NFL. Oh yeah, the NBA. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and that would be that would be interesting too, right? Because thinking about sports as like the last bastion of uh civic pride right. <laughs> that people have. But then every like every arena is basically the same. <laughs> and and most I mean, there are very few like local traditions anymore. So what right. kind of civic pride do you have? Like what does that even mean? <laughs> Why are you destroying your town when you win? Right. So. Because I was in Pittsburgh in 2005 when they won the Super Bowl. That was mm-hmm. my freshman year of college. And it was crazy. Police officers on horseback, people flipping over cars, mm-hmm. jumping on things. And I'm just like, 
Where am I? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> yep. It was wild. It was wild. Yeah. So what do you tell what do you talk about in your classes as far as like that type of writing goes? Right. Um you know, like we haven't gotten to that kind of like a segment yet, but mm-hmm. I think I definitely now that I've talked about it want to kind of like go into writing. Like I have a few weeks that are kind of still open for discussion. I have like um a TA who I know is really passionate about sports because they played college ball and in the NFL and so I want to give them an opportunity to give a lecture on Mm -hmm. whatever it is they want to do and so I'm just like but now these are like generating great ideas this week we're going to be talking about like racialization and sport and kind of how how they go hand in hand and co-create each other so we're reading you know the introduction of Ben Carrington's book from 2010 um, race sports and politics and also a chapter of only in one not because you have to do the foundational classics on mm-hmm. racialization if you're going to talk about it like yeah. you just you have to <coughs> <laughs> or else you'd be remiss not to and then <laughs> next week we're kind of going deeper and focusing on colorism in sport and thinking about um dr ray's work out of the university of maryland and so like i just there were so many things bouncing around in my head when I was designing this mm-hmm. course. I was like, there's no way I can do everything I want to do. Yeah. But I'm going to try and do as much as possible in these, like, 13 weeks, right? <laughs> because the first week, you don't really do much. Yeah. Then there's, like, Thanksgiving, so that doesn't count. <laughs> and then, like, your last week is, like, a day, so you're not doing anything. So it's really, like, 13 weeks of classes. I never, I've never thought about like possible relationships between colorism and sports before yeah but it's gonna be an exciting class i think because i don't think that people do think about it and yeah colorism is such a major issue that kind of like gets kind of like pushed to the back burner because we want to focus on issues of like anti-black racism and racism in general but Mm -hmm. you know colorism was kind of my entryway into sociology Mm -hmm. like I mentioned that I was a McNair scholar and so for my McNair thesis I did interviews with black women who were lawyers and professors to see how they felt their skin tone affected their relationships in the workplace Mm -hmm. because you know I was doing research and saying like huh should I go to grad school or should I go to law school where am I going to be punished the least? <laughs> you know, it was, and I was also doing a lot of reading about like Margaret L. Hunter and her work on colorism. And it was just, you know, really intriguing and fascinating. And so when I read Dr. Ray's work on colorism and sport, I was like, well, I have to talk about this because colorism is how I, you know, how I got to Virginia Tech. Like it took years, but it all came full circle. Yeah, I don't even know what to ask you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I mean, even, like, I don't even know what to say. Like, going to be a course, like, we're talking, you know, I have two collegiate athletes that, well, athletes that were college-affiliated mm-hmm. who are coming to speak, um, both women, um, and one is now in Taiwan working, like, creating her own business, the other one is training for the Olympics. And so it was like these different kind of like wow. understandings of yeah. race, gender, and sport. And I'm so excited yeah. to have a talk. And I'm just like, this class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, and what a great opportunity too for your students right. to hear those perspectives. Right. Um, especially, I mean, those students who are thinking about trying to find a career in sport somehow or who are, right. are current athletes themselves. Like, that's got to be insightful. Yeah. And I, I'm grateful that I was able to kind of, like, bring these people together. Yeah. That's so cool. I wish I could take that class. <laughs> Love it. I'm, like, I'm really trying to hope that it gets moved from, like, a special topics class to a staple. Like, that's my goal. Or at least something that I can teach, like, every other year. Yeah. At the very least. Because yeah. Because I adore this class. And yeah. there's so much that I can do with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's never a class that you're going to have to worry about not filling. And it's also a class that's never going to be not relevant. 
Right. Right? Unless somehow, between now and when this episode airs, that <laughs> <laughs> capitalism has has fled from sports and we can just go back to true, pure athletic competition yeah (laughs) instead of whatever this this colossal mess is that it is now (laughs) i've taken up so much of your time today Letitia. thank you so much for for coming on i really appreciate it Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this and I'll see you next week. Bye.